When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word story time. 160. I'm Adam Collins. I'm in Maroochydore, Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Jeff's in Melbourne in, I assume, probably his bedroom. I only see him down the screen. I don't know for sure. Uh, we uh, make this history program every week. Typically, we're in different time zones. Today, we're aligned, but we're not in the same room. We're still talking down a screen, but we will enjoy it nevertheless. Hello, Jeff. We're not quite in the same time zone because you're in the Queensland, we don't do daylight savings, <laughs> stubbornness time zone, which means that if you're in Queensland, you go from being half an hour ahead of Adelaide to being half an hour behind Adelaide mm. and indeed the entirety of the state of South Australia, while other states do other things. I think this time of summer is when we end up with five time zones across Australia, plus the eight, eight and three quarter hours little one that's on the coast between um, somewhere between Adelaide and Perth, around about the border of WA. So six, technically. It's, yeah, I know it keeps coming up on this show, but it is stupid. And one day, one day we're going to have a national leader who's got the, the fortitude and the forthrightness who will say, you know what, enough of this. No, no more. None of this bullshit. Everybody needs to get in line. No more half hour. You can't have a half hour time zone. What's that? Is it India, Sri Lanka and Adelaide. The ones on half hour time, so sort that out, get rid of that, choose an hour, commit. Everybody on one coast does one daylight savings and uh, everybody on the, on the other one can have... We can have two time zones. We shouldn't have more than two. That's that's my last word on it. Please delete two. Now, can you tell me more about this um, this time zone between Perth and Adelaide? Like I've, I've ne- I, I mean, I've lived in Australia most of my life and I've never heard of this. Um, what do you know about it? Where is this? You've never heard of this. It's it's. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the town. It starts with E. It's it's like U Umunda or something like mm-hmm. that. And it, and it's it's like they decided that they were not. They, they were too far east to be on Western Australian time, but too far west to be on South Australian time. And so the I'm just finding it now. It's called Australian Central Western Time. And it is um, apparently used along the highway, basically through Eucla is the name of the place. So it's just just over the Western Australian side of the WA South Australia border. Mm. And given that Western Australia is huge, I mean, we talked about Queensland being huge, Western Australia is even huger. It's it's so broad from east to west that you, you do have that issue where, you know, like you get with Durban versus, say, Cape Town or... or um, 
Kolkata versus the, the the other side of India, where the country is so broad that being on the one time zone, it means that it gets dark mm. much earlier um, over on the eastern side of the country, um, even though the clock says, you know, so so the clock doesn't seem to match up with what the sky is doing, basically, because, you know, time is a, a concept that we just made up to try to apply some sort of structure onto the world around us, which is a, a generally a futile effort as humans <laughs> just trying to claw some sort of purchase in the hurricane of existence. I like that, that you think time's futile, it lines up with your personality. I want to know if there's any cricketers that are from, uh, any cricketers from you, Clay? It's an illusion, <laughs> that lines up with my personality. Given this is story time, I'm, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that our audience will um, be able to dig this out for us and maybe a subsequent Nerd Pledge answer could deal with any cricketer who's grown up in the Australian Western Central time zone. Because, you know, the WA time zone, generally speaking, I, is I'm a bloody good one, right? Like, <laughs> if you think about, like, they win the lottery of time zones. They, they get mm. to watch two full sessions of Ashes cricket, probably the whole day, actually, before having to realistically go to bed. Um, mm-hmm. All the sport that's on in yep. Europe in the middle of the night, they get... Well, it's just everything works a little bit better when watching stuff from the UK and from Europe, I yeah. suppose, is what I'm saying. And when they're watching stuff from India, it's pretty they much bang on. a couple on. of hours earlier, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you were... We had that last Maybe year when watching a couple of World Cup games. Because they don't do daylight savings either. True, true. Yeah, but there's the two World Cup games Australia played last year. Um, the Socceroos, that is. I say Australia. The yeah. Denmark game and the Argentina game, we were over there for the test match and thus got to experience the benefit of that mm. of being just a little bit earlier in the evening or something like that, but still. Anyway, enough about time zones. I want to know about the cricketer from that weird time zone um, well, as we round it out. I'll, I'll follow up with that. I don't think there will be any Australian um, national representatives from Eucla because as of the most recent census, Eucla had a population of 53. <laughs> so they would they would have done very well to produce a test cricketer out of the 53 people yeah. who were living there. In fact, why haven't you? Why haven't you, Eucla? Slackers, hanging around. Oh, we're on the Great Australian Bite. We've got our own time zone. We don't need to produce any cricketers. Stop slacking, Eucla. This is a country where you need to contribute. You need to do your bit. It's not enough just to put a sign up that says eight and three quarter hours. Where are our cricketers sorted out? Yeah, I, I'm, as I said, I'm Maruchid all this week for the next five days. In theory, having some downtime, but it's not really proven that way yet due to the jet lag that I referred to a couple of days ago. The kids are still suffering from that, although things are getting slightly better. Last night was a, a step in the right direction. And I was trying mm. to work out which cricketers uh, are from here, or at least live in these parts. And the one that's come up a few times is Simon Davies, who played, I think, one One Day International for Australia in the 80s. Um, so I'm pondering whether it's worth trying to track him down. I think he teaches somewhere around here. Uh, and there are a couple of other former cricketers who've relocated to the Sunshine Coast in retirement. You know, I'm not far from Noosa, where a lot of Victorians... What they used to call Noosa? North Melbourne, didn't they? It's where you go to retire um, when you've um, grown, up in, <laughs> grown up in Melbourne. So, yes, uh, concentration of cricketers in different parts of the country. One cricketer from Melbourne mm. is a chap by the name of James Pattinson. You might have heard of him. Um, he was pretty good. He was pretty fucking, oh, yeah. pretty fucking good, James Pattinson at cricket. He's played for Oakley in the VSDCA. The mighty subbies this season and Tom Miles, our James Pattinson correspondent at Oakley, has been corresponding with me right. about this. He apologised for not sending through an update for a few weeks. Pato made 100 on Taboo for the Oaks and he's made a couple of 50s since then. But like what's charming is that his bowling figures are broadly what you'd expect from a standard subbies player on a Saturday afternoon. Like I think he took none for 27 from nine in a one day. Right. Took three three for 29 in another one, made a 30 ball half century. But, you know, it's not, 
the gap isn't as big as I think we imagine it to be between you know, high-level recreation cricket and a guy who's down coming down the pyramid, but all things being equal, would still be playing for Victoria now. Mm. And there was one instance where Paddo was a very, very late omission um, from the game that he was scheduled to be playing in. I wonder what that means, whether it's a you know, <laughs> bit out of fraction too late and missed the alarm or something along those lines. But, um, but uh, yes, we, we will keep talking uh, about Paddo's uh, season and I don't know maybe we should try and catch up with him uh, Jeff he's always been nice to us and and uh, yeah. given he's playing in the subbies he I suppose he'll play against the Hills at some point might try and tie it in with a trip back there when I'm in Melbourne in a couple of weeks time speaking of being out late I, I had we, we spoke on the weekly show about that T20 series that they're playing and how it, you know obviously it's bullshit and pointless and nobody cares. Anyway, I I got home from the pub last night and my first thought was, "Ooh, the cricket's on." Score on. <laughs> because Josh Inglis was smashing him everywhere. So obviously, obviously I watched it and then watched Surya Kumar starting to do his thing and fell asleep partway through the second innings and woke yeah. up and the first thing I did was check the score when I woke up. Yeah. So you know, you put the cricket on, it works. Yeah, it's a it's a time honoured tradition of getting home late from the pub and just scanning the apps. Just to what's going on in games of cricket you've been tracking uh, and in your case popping it on. One other thing that we missed during the week was the Bluey Fest, which I thought this was really nice, that Bluey Fest mm-hmm. this year, so for those who aren't in, in the Bluey world, uh, the most uh, did New York Times make it the number one TV show in the world last year? I think that's right. You know, a, a, a theoretically a kid's program, right. but it's a dance site more than that, believe me. And they did the countdown on Sunday afternoon, which they do each year of every Bluey app, so voted on by the public, you know, so 20 to 1, in effect. And the... Um the usually there, there are a number of bluey apps that pretty much always do well because it makes the adults cry. So uh, so Winnie uh, Winnie knows with me that she can put on Baby Race or Sleepy Time and knows that I'll start crying. And she does it almost as a bit of a bit of a game. Like she enjoys that that bit where I can't keep it anymore in Sleepy Time at the end in Baby Race the whole seven minutes. Right. I'm, I'm quite emotional about as well. Um, but we spoke about cricket when the cricket episode came out uh, with Rusty earlier this year, the character Rusty, who goes on to, and and it's just a word-perfect episode that gets all the, every bit right um, in terms of the creation and the execution of the scripts. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about blue healers here, but uh, believe me when I say it feels very real. And just as Australia were beginning their World Cup final, coming in number one on the ABC Blue FS countdown was cricket. So cricket is now top of the tree, top of the pops. We have a new king, long live it, or long queen it should be, given their girls mm. uh, in Bluey and Bingo. Uh, and it is cricket. So on the same day Australia won the World Cup, uh, the country recognised that brilliant piece of television. And fitting, I reckon, in a year which has been so dominated by cricket with the World Test Championship, Ashes men and women, uh, and now um, the, the Men's World Cup at the end and the Women's World Cup at the start, of course, as well, the T20 World Cup in South Africa, that this would be the year that cricket would go to number one in that really important cultural touchstone as well. It's funny the things that you have a response to and the ones you don't. The, mm. the You know, the World Cup final, obviously, I was there and it was a big day and all the rest of it and I felt the general sort of sense of professional detachment from it all. The next morning I woke up and watched a replay of the... Geelong AFLW team beating Melbourne, the reigning premiers, in the second qualifying final to go through to the prelim. And the, suddenly I was like, hang on, why, I'm, why am I crying? <laughs> <laughs> like the celebrations at the end, because like, it was a close game yeah, and they all, yeah. you know, they, they went absolutely 
mad when they won it and they're all jumping on each other right. and you know it's a new new side and and suddenly I was just like oh god this feels incredibly emotional you know in in a way that the previous evening had not mm. so I don't know it, it's it's hard to predict sometimes what's going to make you go I did watch the bluey episode maybe it's just that I don't have kids but I didn't I didn't have the same reaction to it that apparently everybody else did. Oh, right. Like, this is the single greatest piece of television. I was like, that was nice. It was fine. Yep, the square cut thing is good. I think um, maybe the fact that it's like, it's, it's, Bluey, it's Bluey's universe recognising our thing that got me. Like, it's like, oh, you, you get the thing that yeah. I do, right? And, and, um, and the fact that Winnie had right. a real big response to it as well, that she wanted to watch it over and over and over again. So um, that, that got me in all the right places and clearly got enough Australians in the right places too. Democracy hasn't always been friendly to Australia in 2023. Well... <laughs> the voice referendum I'm referring to there. It was on this front. Uh, uh, one more thing to note in our preamble before we get to our new numbers is that the live show tickets are doing really nicely. Got another update last night. Still lots of space in Sydney, though, and the reason is that it's a huge venue compared to what we normally do. The Comedy Store, it's a great venue, um, and it'll work no matter how many people end up coming, and we're going really well. But it's the kind of venue where if you brought 20 people along on a cricket trip or, a, you know, if you're up at the SCG, and there'll be room for that kind of thing, bringing groups through. So I just wanted to note that. So um, do uh, get in touch if you want to bring a bigger group, and we'll see what we can do in terms of, you know, bulk tickets and all that kind of jazz in the usual way, getting in touch with Jeff and me. But yes, uh, Sydney on the 7th of January, Melbourne, the Corner Hotel, which everyone I've told in my world that I'm doing a thing at the Corner have been quite excited about that in the same way that you and I were when it became obvious that we'd be doing this show. So that's the 11th of December. And I guess, Jeff, when we're both in the same time zone, uh, next week we'll start getting busy on actually writing the show. But we've got a pretty good idea of what we want to do and um, and it has uh, evolved from when we first started doing these back in 2019. All right, let's get on with what we need to do, which is tell some stories via the medium of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game we play with the nice people on the internet. It works like this. Some people fund this program by sending through contributions in whatever currency they're allowed to choose and whatever denomination of that currency. Not a normal one, a specific one, a very specific one, because the number relates to cricket and we have to work out what the number means. I will give you an example to explain that concept. Jonathan Potton has sent through... A contribution of two pounds and fifty-five pence. That means the number is two five five. The decimal could go anywhere. Two five five could be interpreted in any way. What does two five five mean when it comes to cricket? It could it could mean a range of things, but it could it could mean this, Adam. There was no clue attached to this as far as I could tell. So I've gone with the fact that only once in the history of Test cricket has an individual made two hundred and fifty-five. And that was Jackie McGlue, who was a South African opening bat, who did it while beating up New Zealand in the March of 1953. Uh, this is a second series that South Africa and New Zealand had played. They played a couple of tests in 1932 and then they didn't play again for 21 years. So I doubt that there were any players who were in both of those teams. But 1953, they play a couple of tests. South Africa go to New Zealand again. I think that's what happened in 32 as well. And they play in Wellington. And it's this South African team that has a few names that might be familiar with long-time storytime listeners. Uh, Jackie McGlue has come up before. Russell Endine was uh, one of South Africa's star bats. And, of course, Hugh Tayfield, who loved to fuck. Uh, Hugh Tayfield, the spinner who had five wives, and he was in this team. I don't think he had them all at once, but he had them consecutively as far as I know. Now... This, this, the New Zealand team, they're not too crash hot at this point in terms of quality players. They've basically only got Bert Sutcliffe. They've got John Reid, the first John Reid. 
And and they've got Bob Blair on debut, who was a very good quick bowler, who, while looking him up, I realised he's still with us at the age of 91. We should he is. go and try to interview Bob Blair and he, he would have some stories to tell. Yeah, I'm intending on doing so. He lives in, uh, I believe he lives in Sunderland, uh, somewhere in the northeast of England. And yeah, I mean, as again, long-term listeners would know, it's not, his story isn't straightforward, um, Blair's, but um, I believe uh, Jeremy Coney told me that um, he speaks even now, he, he's um, very lucid and he's a, a got interesting reflections on the game. So yeah, leave, leave that one mm. with me. So the match report for this game is brutal when it comes to New Zealand, the wisdom. Report, it says, of South Africa, there was never any doubt about their superiority. They displayed batting and bowling form far above that of New Zealand and the fielding bore no comparison. Uh, New Zealand threw away countless runs by poor fielding. This weakness did much to determine the result. Sluggishness in the field on the first day and even worse form on the Saturday in no small way contributed to the fact that New Zealand faced a score of 524 for eight wickets declared. And they did. And that's what happened, 524 for eight, while Jackie opening the batting made 255. Not out, almost carried his bat, had those last couple of wickets fallen. Then he would have done so. Bob Blair took four for 98 and was the standout performer with the ball. And then New Zealand, and this was the bit that got me interested, after Bert Sutcliffe makes mm. 62 at the top of the order and nobody else does much, they're all out for 172. They follow on. Bert, top scores again, makes 33. And then they're all out again for 172. Same score, right? And so I, this just made me think, well, I, how often has that happened? And I, I knew in my head that the highest matching scores were India making 407 twice in a test match and that that's, that's one of those numbers that floats around. But I thought, which other teams have done it? And I tried to look for it. Initially, I just had a little Michael Google and poked around and couldn't find it anywhere and maybe my just my search terms weren't up to scratch or whatever but I just assumed that someone would have a list of this Adam it's the kind of thing that you know that you, you expect there's going to be a badger list somewhere that says here are all of the times that a team has made the same score in test cricket couldn't find it maybe it's out there but if it is I wasn't able to track it down so then I thought I have to figure this out right and I, and I have to build a method to do it myself because so you can look it up so you, you can you can go to so you go, say you go to stats guru and you look up every innings in every every team innings in men's tests for instance there are over 9000 entries in this list so there's there are there are there are a lot of options and i was like okay well if i'm if i'm going to find it i need to order them by score and then i need to go through the match dates and try to find uh, match dates that are the same because they group the match dates by the the, the date that the, a test match started, not the date that the innings was completed on or whatever it was. So if I could see two dates, one after the other, would, that would be the same, then I would know that these scores came from the same match. But doing that would be, you know, it's very small text and it's, and, and it would, it, I was like, this is going to take a long time and be really annoying and it's, it'll be easy to miss things and then it'll be easy to forget where they were. So I thought, okay, I want to spreadsheet this so that I can do a colour match highlight thing to, to point out where these duplicates occur. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting when, if you're not, if I were more computer literate, I'd be able to do this in a much more efficient way. When you don't know how to do something, then you end up like, you, when you don't have time to figure out a better way to do it, you end up just doing the way that takes longer because um, you don't have the, the 
the luxury to work out a better method of doing it, right? Well, like there is a lot of ways of scraping data from Creek Info. Like I, I think that, that that all that all makes sense what you're saying. But like some people have worked out how to do this stuff. Like Zoltzman has taught himself how to scrape enormous like database levels of, of, of uh, scorecards. That's a bad way of explaining it as well, but you know what I, you know what I mean mm. by that. Like there's this data on a website and he's yep. found a way of ripping it in a way that is efficient for his work. Yep. That's a sort of skill set that you and I should invest in. We should be trained up in this because we do so much of this. That um, mm. The manual labour involved in some of the, st- the stat packs that I make for myself before commentating on a test match or whatever it is, there must be a better way than... I usually spend somewhere between eight and 16 hours preparing for the first test of a new series and then every subsequent test Mm. between four and eight hours, depending on the change in teams and the volatility. Yeah, I I basically allow two days before the first test and one day for every other test. And a lot of that is due to the manual labour. And I found no better system for it. I'm I'm not saying everyone does that, but that's just my own process. And um, if you're out there and you know how to do things like this, uh, get in touch. Let's make a business. Well, so one of our listeners, Owen Brazier, did a thing like this, sort of made a a stats search program, which I'd like to get. If you're listening, Owen, I should get back to working out how to use it. So you can can write a Python script, um, which then extracts the data into a, into CSV format, into like a spreadsheet format, which I think people like Sean McGiven among our listeners have done things like that and, and have their own sort of stats database right. that they take off the other websites. But it, so all of, all of these things, I was like, okay, I could go and talk to one of these people and figure out a way to do it or whatever, but I don't have time. I just need to get it done. So I'm just going to do it the shitty old fashioned way, which meant the largest number of entries you can get on a page on Crick Info is 200, which meant I had to get 9,000 plus entries copied off in batches of 200, which meant copying and pasting them manually into a spreadsheet, taking out all the extraneous lines and things that weren't supposed to be there, matching it up. It was a major pain in the ass, but at least I knew that it was going to work. And then I've, I, I knew how to do formulas in a spreadsheet to identify duplicate data, but you can't do that for the dates list. So there's there's a couple of quirks here, right? You couldn't put the info into a spreadsheet and then order it by score because when they format a score in terms of a declared score, so say you have 231 all out versus 231 for eight, the dash eight means that a spreadsheet won't recognise that as being a number. And so it will order that away from it'll order that down the bottom if you if you set it in ascending order so you have to do the ordering on on the stats guru page itself so that your 231 and your 231 right. for eight are next to one another because stats guru recognizes yeah. that that's the same number so you set that up in order and then when you've got a bunch of the same scores of 252 or whatever it is it will then secondarily order them by the date that they happen so then the dates will match up in the other column so you get things working that way. But then if you look for duplicates in in the date column, every match has multiple innings, which means there'll be multiple instances of every date, which means every single date will come up as a duplicate, which means that the entire column is highlighted. So then I had to figure out a conditional formatting rule to only show subsequent (laughs) iterations of the same bit of information. So replicate cells that were next to one another, adjacent duplicates, they call it. Mm -hmm. So I had to figure out how to do that, which I did figure out to do, and thus eventually was able to go, here's my 9,000 plus innings in order of score and in order of date, and the duplicate data are highlighted in fluorescent green, and thus they're easy to find. And that is the exciting story of how I made a spreadsheet to figure out (laughs) this, to answer this question that I'd set for myself to find and, and so there are quite a lot of test matches where the two different teams each make the same score um, yeah. and what 
watching is how much I love you. Okay, okay, darling. <laughs> Say hi to Uncle Jeff. <laughs> Being well behaved, don't you, darling? How's your jet lag, Winnie? We did this the other day. I interviewed you the other day, didn't I? Jeff's asking how your Jeff, what, how your jet lag's going. Okay. How did you sleep last night, darling? Yeah. Okay. You, you did it. What sort of sleep did you do last night? I hate all night. Oh, you've gotten shy. You've gotten shy. Okay, see you later. Oh, guess how much I love you is on the telly and you want to tell me about... Okay, thank you. We'll watch it together later? Yeah. Okay, I love you this much. <laughs> so, two different teams making the same score in a match happens quite a bit and I think that sort of makes sense because sometimes you'll have one team looking to get up to the score of the other team before declaring or, you know, sort of pushing to reach that score with their last few wickets or whatever it is. So, so the, it's the observer effect, right? The, the, the second team is more likely to make a similar score to the first team kind of thing. But the same team making the same score doesn't happen very much. The first duplicate, actually, with the two different teams happens in the very first test series. The second test in Melbourne in 1877, Australia make 122 earlier yep. in the match and England make 122 for six chasing. But... In terms of the same team, that came up. That came up. Uh, that, that came up when I was looking through a 122 recently, and um, you might recall I, huh. I picked that. Might have done it with Daniel, I reckon. I did that test match because there were two instances of the same score being made as a total, and I was fascinated by the fact that it happened. In just well, I say right. fascinated. It wasn't like titillating information, but the fact that it happened in the second <laughs> test ever, which I think is a test that doesn't get enough love because you know we spent so much time referring to the first one mm. in Australia and the first one in England. What about the second one in Australia? No one talks about mm. that. Anyway, please continue. It was pretty good. So uh, looking at scores and how big they are, so India made 136 in both innings in Calcutta in 1956, the series when Ian Johnson is captaining Australia, the, the spinner, one of yep. the rare sort of almost bowlers, although he was kind of an all-rounder captaining Australia. That comes, Claxton, uh, Claxton, that series comes up later. Interesting. All right, OK. Bangladesh made 148 twice against Pakistan in 2002 in Chattagram. Lisa needs braces. Uh, New Zealand <laughs> made 161 both times in Hobart in 1993. I'm going to assume they lost that one. Uh, there's the match that I mentioned already, 172 twice in Wellington for New Zealand against South Africa. The West Indies did it. This one's interesting. Against Sri Lanka at St John's, the Windies all out for 189 and then won the match 189 for four, chasing in the fourth innings. Um, huh. Ambrose, Walsh, Rose, Bishop are the reason that they were able to bowl out Sri Lanka cheaply um, second time around and mm -hmm. set themselves a modest total, even though they were all out for 189 when they batted first. India again, 201 twice in Sydney in 1981 against Australia, obviously. New Zealand, New Zealand and India, these all seem to be New Zealand and India. New Zealand, 208 twice against the Windies in 1956. Pakistan in 1984 against New Zealand again. In Hyderabad, the Pakistan version, made 230 twice. There's one that we were at, um, Lords 2019. England made 258 and then declared on 258 in their second innings, if you remember that. The Ben Stokes 100 to propel them up to a defendable fourth innings total and they weren't able to bowl Australia out, but for five minutes it looked like they were going to. There were two things in that test, wasn't there? there were, England made 258 in both innings and I'm pretty sure that it was a first innings lead for Australia of one run, which has only happened five times in test history or something like that. There were two things about that 258 in the first innings and then right. yeah, that, that, that stood out. There was a... Yeah, it might have even been... Is it possible it was 258 for both sides? Just as, as I was explaining it there, I seem to recall 
maybe it was one of those where both teams were mm. level. Although, if that were the case, we would have seen that on the scorecard three times and had a conniption. It's no way it could have been the same. Maybe yeah. it was 259, 258, 258. No. Anyway, anyway, something like that. It was, I've just pulled it up, Australia made 250, England made 258, Australia made 250, right. England made 258, and then Australia batted at the draw. 2009, um, New Zealand against India. It's always New Zealand and India. What's going on there? Hamilton, um, New Zealand made 279 in both innings. And then Sri Lanka made 306 twice in Cape Town in 1998. They nearly beat South Africa in that game. Marvin Adapatu and Aravinda De Silva both making runs in both innings. And then there's the 407 twice that India made. So mm. there's only a dozen times in the 2,500 test matches where one team has made the same score in both innings, um, which means it was almost worth me spending the hours that I spent <laughs> building yeah. the Excel oh. spreadsheet to figure that out, which means I should write a weird blog post and put it up on the internet so that next time someone's searching for this, they don't have to go through the same process. Yeah, I agree with that. And look, if it's happened 12 times, that means that the, the probability of this happening, there's been, what, 45 test hat-tricks and there have been 40-odd uh, triple hundreds and there have been about 70-odd mm -hmm. hundreds on debut. Like 120 tonnes on debut. Yeah. 120, is it? Sorry. But still, you know, you, 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 they're, they're often used as historical markers of unusual events, and if you've seen one of them, you remember it. Well, we have been. That's something that is three times rarer than mm. a test hat-trick, that being um, the, the 2019 True. Ashes test. And I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that and I'll, I'll value it. Mm. <laughs> anyway, it all stems from the 255 that Jackie McGlue made, which is almost certainly not the answer to Jonathan Potton's nerd pledge of 255, but it is the answer that you have received, Jonathan. If you want to let me know how to find the real answer, <laughs> send us a message and we'll do our best to come back to it another time. If it isn't my old friend, friend Jackie McGlue, who did what he did in 1932. Thank you, Jeff, for starting the show for Jonathan Potton 255 in the GBP. Uh, Jeff, before the break, a word for our partners throughout the summer of 2023-2024, Seabus Super, and we are just bang up chuffed about this, aren't we? That CBUS, who have been brilliant supporters of what we do on The Final Word since, well, pretty much since we started doing this as, as we are in these days. And by that, I mean in a dedicated way. Well, when they joined us, Jeff, we were barely even a weekly show and we were doing the World Cup dailies and now we're kind of a four or five time a week operation. But yes, in this incarnation, they will be with us for uh, everything that happens in the Aussie summer. The daily shows we'll make uh, during the Australian test matches, the women's test match as well. Uh, and then through to the test matches in New Zealand that we'll be both attending in March. It's, it's exciting. I'm big kevved. We were just a ragtag group of rascals when, when we got together with CBUS superannuation. It's not just normal annuation, it's superannuation. Um, I'm sure that's a tagline. that they, they, they can buy that off me if they want because that's the kind of sloganeering <laughs> that, that the people want. Um, the one thing that we do know is that if you sort your super out, it makes your life better because it means you have uh, money to retire on. We also know that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, um, but we know that getting your super sorted out is something thing that uh, anybody should do. And you might have some You might have some lost super you didn't even know about. They can help you with that. They can find yes. the bits and pieces of your random super funds from the different jobs that you've had over the years where you forgot to consolidate it and roll it together. They can do all that for you. They can give you advice on how to manage it um, and uh, help you look after yourself into the future. How bad did it get for you? Like, we've all got our horror stories about how bad our super situation got. And by that, I mean how many accounts you... I reckon I had seven separate accounts lying around. Yeah. 
and ultimately went to a, an industry fund that helped, which CBUS are of course as well a proud industry us. fund to, to, to sort it out for me. Uh, and um, and it, and I was surprised at how in the end how easy the process was. It's just because. Mm you start all these jobs when you're a teenager or in your 20s and they're part-time gigs or whatever yeah. and you're in all these different super funds. But, you know, this is what the type of... We spoke a lot about last year. The type of advice that CBUS can provide you, line it all up, get it all in a straight line, have it all consolidated and make your life a lot easier and it means ultimately that you're... Um, your your super is consolidated and, and earning money as it should rather than being all over the place. Well, I didn't have that problem because, as you know, I've, I've had an unconventional work history um, and so I've, I've only <laughs> ever had one job. I've only ever been an employee once in my life and that was working at the casino when I was at university. So I only had the one set, um, which AMP stole all of by signing me up for bullshit insurances and things that I hadn't actually signed up for and, oh, yeah. and stealing all the, you know, eating all of the money in the account before I ever thought to look at it. And then they were like, oh, by the way, your account's empty. That's sad. It's like, mm, okay, good. That's very good money management. <laughs> you know, you guys really doing the job there. Well done. Thanks for the life insurance that you just auto defaulted me into at the age of 21 when I obviously needed life insurance, you know, to, to pay for all of my dependents. <laughs> like, I don't know. So they're, they're no CBUS Super, I'll tell you that. Nope, cbussuper.com.au, get your super sorted out. And yeah, we're looking forward to telling you all about CBUS over the next four months. A brilliant partner of The Final Word. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. I'm next, and I have a long answer. Becoming a bit of a pattern, isn't it, in recent weeks that I get I get a bit too invested in my numbers. Anyway, um, hopefully you forgive me for this. Yes. 465 is my number in AUD from Peter Lennigan. This is a, a new pledger, so hello, Peter. Thanks for joining the fun. I should start by saying that 465 is Hot Toddy's cap number, and my suspicion is that Peter made his pledge around the time that um, that Todd Murphy made his test to at Nagpur in March. That would be mm. my rough guess. So based on timelines, I reckon there's a... He's in the PM's 11. He is indeed. There's a better than even chance that he's actually talking about Todd Murphy here. But given we're doing his story mm. in real time on the pod, like, you know, we're telling the story of Todd Murphy. I like it when players taboo, mm. you know, who we've either identified or watch play at the start and we can track their progress in international cricket and he'll be one of them. That, that PM's 11, it, that is so fine a word. Both both Nathan Max are in the team. Um, yep. The three dueling openers, Harris, Bancroft, Renshaw, all in there. <laughs> and who else is in there? Jimmy Pearson's in there and Michael Neese is in there. Nice. No room for Henry Helen Hunt? No. No, Henry Hunt, not there. Too busy uh, chasing after... Um, cyclones or something like that. That's the best Helen Hunt reference I can come up with. Uh, now, uh, uh, Todd, uh, so, yeah, to, um, uh, yeah, so Todd Murphy's... Mad about uh, you was getting the- a spot in the PM's 11 instead of me. <laughs> um, he was the uh, he was the 465th Australian Test Cricketer at Nagpur. My had reason to go back and listen to some of that commentary a couple of weeks ago was something I was working on, and I went back and listened to the passage of Brat and me setting up the Judasia dismissal. It's very rare, as you know, Jeff, that... You will, as a commentator or working with a summariser, set something up that just comes true magically like the next ball. And so it was with Baz and mm. I and what, how we were explaining what Todd Murphy was doing to Jadeja before he shouldered arms and got bowled off stump and everything we said ended up playing out. So that was fun. Anyway, didn't make my cut. Uh, the um, That was the com box we worked in, Jeff. You were on one side, I was on the other with the rat shit everywhere. I'll never forget that week in Nagpur. Oh, yeah. there was a, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say like the that was representative of the city at large. Like I 
that we found that ripping coffee shop that we spent loads of time in, where I think a guy from Sydney mm-hmm. opened it. Uh, Lawler spent some time with him, interviewing him for the, his own podcast. And there was the... And that good brewery as well. The brewery we went to a couple of times. And wasn't there um, the, uh, you'll have to remind me, the theme restaurant where we recorded the story time... It was a th- what was the theme? Oh, um, it was um, it was a Pablo Picasso theme. Picasso theme. Bar? That's it. Pa- yeah, that's right. We watched uh, we watched Australia's Picasso women play a, a World Cup game there. I think they yeah. was it Australia's women, India's women, possibly. Again. We watched a game there. Watched a World Cup game there and recorded the podcast there. But there mm. were some really nice things. I love the old Association Ground we visited as well, and where Australia beat India in a test there in two thousand and four. So I think Nagpur had a fair bit going for it. It's not their fault that our lens was um, or how we viewed it was through our commentary boxes and the accommodation we ended up in where we didn't have hot showers for a week that's our fault that's not their fault well the, the comm boxes are but the accommodation's kind of on us anyway yeah he received his baggy green from Nathan Lyon I'll just finish by saying that Mm-hmm. However, I, I can't, even though this is an AUD and probably Todd, I can't miss the chance to spread my wings a bit here to the UK because 465 is a massive figure in the history of the game and one we've never done properly. Uh, that's Mike Brearley, cap 465 for England, a mm-hmm. career that really couldn't happen now, Mike Brearley's, in so many ways. I thought I'd go back and just get a sense of what it was like before he played for England and it was totally worthwhile. So... Let's do the biographical stuff to, to begin with. Born in 1942 in Harrow and went to the City of London School, which is a nice school there in the Barbican, I'm pretty sure. His dad, Horace, is, was the schoolmaster there. And his dad, Horace, also played a little bit of first-class cricket. He played one game for Yorkshire before the war and four games for Middlesex after the war. But how's this? So Horace Brearley played mm. in Fred Titmus's debut when Titmus made his for Middlesex as a 16-year-old in 1949. And then 33 years on from that, Titmus's final game, because he, of course, had one of these marathon first-class careers, was when Mike Brearley, his son, was the Middlesex captain. And, of course, they played loads together between times. But, like, the idea of him starting with right. one generation and finishing with another, and that's one of only five first-class games that, that Horace played. He lived to 94 and was Yorkshire's oldest living player when he passed away. But, yeah, back to his son, Mike Got into Cambridge. It's a great name, Horace. Really, yeah. really strong name. I'm surprised it hasn't had a comeback with all of those those names like, you know, Arlo and, and sort of Ernest and things like that that are getting yeah. a run again. I would have thought Horace would be bang up there. Um, mm. And you've got the the Egyptian crossover as well, Horace. The, Horace is the god of learning or something, right? Okay. Isn't he the wisdom god with the falcon head, I think? So I, I have watched a Horace really. play some cricket. I have watched the Horace play a little bit of cricket during the pandemic. I used to, through Zoltzman's Zoom screen, he's got a, a sort of a half a net and a bowling machine stuck in the backyard there and Zoltz works in his shed. Like he's got a shed office at the back and that is kind of next to where the net is. So Horace, um, his kid, was netting during the pandemic and we can sometimes watch him face a few balls in the bowling machine. So have watched some Horace plays cricket. Um, uh, but yes, um, Mike Brearley, son of Horace, Went to Cambridge, I think we all know that. Spent a bloody long time as a student, which stands to reason given um, what he achieved in, in academia and beyond. Between 1961 and 1968, he played for Cambridge when he was studying classical and modern sciences mm-hmm. and um, did that in undergraduate, then immediately did his postgraduate study. And that's why he was there so long. He was captain from 1964. So a full career for the university back when that was kind of a thing. And this is not the first time we've spoken about Cambridge cricket as recently either, of course. I look back at his early games... 
And one of them in 1961, when he was a 19-year-old, was against the touring Australians. And Australia made 449 for three declared in their first innings, with Laurie, McDonald, Booth and Mackay all making centuries. I'm pretty sure the top four, no, that, that's batsmen, batters, one, two, three, four. I don't think that's happened often in first-class history. I think it's happened once in tests. I feel like the Windies... I remember South Africa doing it, I think. South Africa, right. Yeah, but another one of these sort of rarities and oddities where, you know, the top four all-making tons doesn't happen very often. It did happen um, in this game that Brearley played against Australia. Brearley, JM, as he is on scorecards, his first name's actually John, but John Mike, he went by Mike. But he top-scored against Australia in both innings. So a sign of things to come, in a way. He was a wicketkeeper at that point, batting number eight, made 73 in the first dig, elevated to open when they were following on and made 89 in the second. So Brearley's first interaction with Australia, you know, 20 years before his most famous one, is mm. in a game for Cambridge. He was, from there, out of that performance, he plays against the MCC and top scores again, makes 74 batting up the list. How's this for the MCC? Worrell and Sobers were in the attack. You know, they're out there playing <laughs> and doing their thing. They just turn out in a university game for the MCC, which which strikes me again as one of these things that just couldn't happen anymore. Mm. A golden, it's uh, like James era. Pattinson playing for Oakley. Yeah, quite, except, you know, in, in this case, Worrell and Sobers, 61. This is a very famous year for them based on what they did in Australia later in it or earlier in it because it was 60-61, wasn't it? Anyway, mm. um, and he goes straight as a 19-year-old, really, into the gents versus players game of 1961. So that's the second last year where we had gents versus players games and um, he was a player, um, sorry, rather, a gent Better get that right. Captained by Peter May. And the players were led by Willie Watson. Now, he's a finer word fave we've done before as a dual international. Watson played four games of football for England as a midfielder and 23 cricket test matches as a left-hand batsman uh, in that 50s, 60s era. But, um, yeah, so really, you know, playing in his first year, impressive start with Cambridge, Good game against the MCC, does well against the Australians, plays for the Gents versus players, gets a couple of Middlesex games. The county he goes on to lead with distinction later on. One against Derbyshire at the start where he takes the gloves. and But yeah, this pattern starts with him where he's only really eligible or available to play a couple of games a year due to his study. Doesn't, doesn't play at all in 1963. In 1964, he does play more games for um, Middlesex and it includes a, a landmark moment for him because when the Australians visit again, playing for Middlesex, not Cambridge, he makes 100 against them, 106 not out in the second dig and saves the game for Middlesex and they get a draw at Lords against Australia. And that's a season, uh, 1964, where he makes five first-class hundreds. Doesn't make five hundreds in a season again until 1980 when he's out of the England team and makes a stack of runs and ultimately gets back for the 81 Ashes as I'm I'm sure you, you know, which is what we're coming to in a little bit. But yeah, so Brearley's five tonnes in 64 gets him on an England trip. Mike Smith's tourists, the MCC going to England, going to South Africa rather, as England in, in 64, 65. So doesn't play any of the test matches. And again, there's this period of having to wait. Really good county season, uh, but doesn't get his test cap until 1976. So he gets his tour um, with England, with the MCC, but doesn't make his debut for a, for a generation really. But yeah, as a young lad, going great guns, um, made um, a couple of 50s and enjoyed his time in South Africa. But over the next few years, the late 60s, he's playing far more for Cambridge than he is for Middlesex. Only a limited amount of success when playing county cricket. But he does get on an MCC under-25s trip 
to Pakistan in 1966-67 as the captain. So he's done enough, and they already see him as this guy who's going to be a leader. Um, and it, it's got some great names on that on that chart who go on to play Test cricket because this was you know the England under 25s really. He makes 793 runs in 100 at 132 in just seven matches. So he absolutely smashed it, and it includes a major moment for him opening the batting against North Zone at Prashara. Uh, makes 312 not out in a first class fixture in just 330 minutes. Um, you know, 30, uh, 46 boundaries and three sixes in a 208. Uh, run opening stand with Alan Knott and they make, you know, they make over 500 in about 110 overs. They baseball their way to that. Um, but he doesn't make the most of that. So this is, as I say, in 1966-67, doesn't make another century until 1973 in first-class cricket. So had the chance, doesn't grasp it. Much of that time, though, he's an academic in Newcastle. So he goes up to, after he finishes his study, to work in his field, which is um, uh, as a psychoanalyst, and he does this academically initially. Doesn't really play at all in 1969 or 1970. But he does get another Pakistan trip in 1973-74, really weirdly, playing for a rest of the world 11 who played two matches against Pakistan. I have no idea why a rest of the world 11 was going to Pakistan. It wasn't like, you know, we had those sides that popped up to play against South Africa in this era. By the way, earlier in 1968, he was a a forceful voice for um, not um, playing against South Africa. He backed in John Arlett heavily, who was writing this line for the Guardian newspaper and, and so on. And so he was in the thicker things, even in his 20s, in the in the discourse, if you like. But yeah, it seems weird to me that he gets on this trip in 73, 74 for a rest of the World 11 with half the West Indies in it. You know, Clive Lloyd, Lance Gibbs, Rowan Canai, you know, he's in this team uh, when he's barely making a run for Middlesex. He does Captain Middlesex, though, from 1971. That might be why the relationships that he's developing and, and so on. This is when he finds his mojo, though, as a proper county star. Um, in 1975 and 1976, he makes 400s in both seasons, uh, nearly 1,700 runs in both as well. And that is when um, he starts to really turn a corner. In 1976, that's the year when Middlesex win the county championship under his captaincy for the first of four times. And it's in 1976 when the England call finally comes, remembering that his first tour was in 64-65. It's at Trent Bridge in 76 when he gets his cap, gets to watch Viv Richards make the famous 232 in the field and oh, gets yeah. a four-ball duck the when David opening Steele the series. batting straight mm-hmm. after that. Uh, he does play in that series still. Yes, that's right. That's his, his um, second home series for England. But yeah, the... Um, the first innings for Brearley at test level doesn't go quite so well. He's playing under Tony Gregg. That's the We'll Make Them Grovel Series 76. And also goes to India under Gregg's captaincy in 76-77. Makes his highest test score of 91 at the work, rest and play on that trip. And does well enough to make the centenary test. And, you know, he, he does okay in that. You know, he gets a start in the first innings when they're bowled out for 100, not even. And makes 40-something, betting with... Um, betting with uh, um, uh, why am I struggling to remember that? Derek Randall uh, bats with Randall through the um, middle overs there as they have some chance of chasing down 450 odd I thought you were about to bust out some acapella at that point you yeah know, yeah like clicking my fingers like you know, you know suddenly you were, who's this who's this man who played this innings that I've talked about so many times before Mr. Sandman oh Andy Sandham send me a dream comes up later comes up later Andy Sandham so so Brearley this is when Brearley he always does he does you're right yeah this is where he takes over and comes into his own so 1977 Ashes is immediately after the news is broken about World Series cricket Greg is moved over to that. So Brearley becomes the captain. They win the Ashes 3-0. 
It's the emergence of both of them, along with Willis, and, and they are the two key planks to the Brearley captaincy. They're fast, they're brilliant, uh, they're aggressive, they're nasty, and they are winning lots of test matches in the late 70s. Um, Brearley himself makes 81 at the Oval, and, and yeah, he's playing his role without really dominating, but yeah, they beat Australia 3-0. And this is the series when he first wears that, um, I don't know if you've seen pictures before, Jeff, of the original helmet, which is two, uh, which is kind of a piece of plastic that went underneath the cap that covered his temples. Mm. So he was an innovator right. as well. Didn't want to hurt that, you know, hurt that wonderful big brain of his. Um, but yeah, in the World Series era, um, that's when he's leading England to success in Australia as well, which we spoke about with Gower on that interview that went out this week when they won 5-1 against the depleted Australian side in 78-79. He captains them in the World Cup in 1979 as well. Makes a clutch half-century against New Zealand in the semi-final, which I think is important to offset the criticism that he and Boycott cop for um, the way they batted in the final where they both make 50s, in Brearley's case, 64, but they batted so slowly that oh, they are behind the run rate. Um, but, yeah, he if not for his half-century in the semi in a tight win over New Zealand, they wouldn't have made the decider. Did stuff that no one really did as leader. Yeah, he put 10 on the rope in a one-day game when the Windies needed three from the last ball at the SCG, including the wicketkeeper, David Bairstow. They all went back to the very extremity of the ground, so there was no way of a boundary being struck from the last ball, you know, that's before there were fielding oh, restrictions. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So, story. He's a, yeah, he, 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 he was a lateral thinker. That's a little example, I well, suppose. That's, that's sort of what brings fielding restrictions it is. in, isn't it? Yeah. Like, to, to counter that tactic. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and by 1980, I mentioned he had his big county season. But he's out of the team. This is when the Botham juggernaut's taking off and Botham becomes captain. And then we all kind of know how it ends after that. 1981, Botham has the Parrot Lords. Brearley comes back to captain. And yeah, well, the rest is history, isn't it? Um, his first test back in charge is Leeds 1981, one of the most famous test matches ever played. Then, of course, Birmingham, Old Trafford and the Oval ends his career at the Oval in that draw, making a half century job done big time England win the Ashes 3-1 in the 39 test matches that Brearley mm. played he captained 31 of them which is an incredibly high percentage only lost 4 of those 39 they won 18 of course went on to have such a distinguished career as a psychoanalyst he was the president of the British Psychoanalytical Society, wrote The Art of Captaincy when he retired, which is still seen as the, the great book of leadership in cricket, president of the MCC about 15 years ago. I really should, you know, having done all this research on his earlier career, I think we should get him on the show. Maybe book club. Maybe we should do The Art of Captaincy on book club and get Brearley on to talk about that and... and we can have him tell story of his career woven through that. But yes, yeah, so 45 first-class centuries, even if none of them were for England, but over 25,000 first-class runs, all the way back from 1961 when he had that remarkable start. Serious player, massive brain, perhaps England's finest captain, Mike Brealy, and he was the 465th Test cricketer for England. That's for Peter Lenigan. And, yeah, wonderful writer on the game as well. Yep, of course. I, I remember having one of those, one of those weird... You know, those moments where you think, like, hang on, my life is strange. This this probably isn't a real thing. Um, at the would have been at the Wisden dinner in 2019 when I got the prize for the book, and he was there, and he just he just very politely sort of came up and introduced, "Hello, I'm Michael." And it must have been the MCC dinner because he his book was on the shortlist for it as well, which they'd pre-announced, which which was what made it particularly nice that he was willing to come up and be nice about other people's work when he's, you know, you, you, you probably shouldn't be able to get past Mike Brearley on a book prize shortlist, but anyway. Yeah, that's a nice one. And I think that's kind of, you know, his personality is that, that he's very giving, that he's, you know, from a, a left of centre political persuasion, that he's, you know, got 
a moral compass that has been apparent to everybody for a long time mm. and, and even the way in which he was sought out by Lawrence very recently when Lawrence uh, wrote, um, he and Nick Holt uh, wrote that book about baseball that Lawrence thought, you know what, would be a good person to get to talk about baseball, Mike Brearley. Um, and there's a nice chapter in there which we talked about on, I guess, our previous edition of Book Club about a month ago when right. when we had Holty and um, and Lawrence on the show. But, you know, he's still seen as the definitive person, you know, the, the source of advice on, on these matters. And, you know, interesting that he went on to, you know, sort of self-diagnose, or not self-diagnose, that's the wrong term, but from a distance diagnose a certain depression in Stokes and so on. And, yeah, his, his words carry a lot of weight. So it would be great to get Brearley on. I think that would be worthwhile. So two people to get on, Bob Blair uh, and and Mike Brearley, some homework for me at the back of uh, this edition of Storytime. Uh, Jeff, you're next up. The number that you are going to be dealing with uh, is 369. Uh, for Dave Williams, 379, make that, sorry. For Dave Williams, that's also a new pledge in AUD. It's yep. also a free hit. 379, yes. If there was a clue here, Dave, I have lost it. I'm pretty sure this was an open number, but let me know. Anyway, 379, I could do the cap thing. I could. There, there are two Collins that have this cap. There's Colin Cowdery and there's Colin Miller, um, who we've talked about plenty after you tracked him down for the, the greatest season final frontier series uh, and found him living in Vegas and operating casino security and, and switching off from cricket basically not paying much attention to what happens in cricket anymore which is kind of nice and in keeping with his um, impulsive personality I suppose uh, Prithvi Shaw made it 379 for Mumbai which would have been not that long before this pledge came in but probably a few months before so I doubt it's the 379 against the might of Assam Shadal Tucker doing the donkey work to bowl out Assam twice following on after that big first innings. So I started looking at scores again of teams that have made 379 in test matches. West Indies made it against England in the team that David Gower played in in 1981. As I was just looking for links to things that we've done recently, Gower made 54 in the second innings, and that's against the the primo mint Windies bowling attack. Andy Roberts, Michael Holding, Colin Croft, Joel Garner, you know, the one that... The, the quartet that didn't actually play together very much, I think it's six times, I reckon. I was looking this up when when Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood, Lyon were doing their thing. I remember about a year ago I was thinking how, how many times had they actually all played together. So, again, I made a spreadsheet to work that out and they're up to something like 22 tests that they've played together and, and that Windy's quartet... Um, only played six times together with all four of them. Yeah, the it, it's just funny because with with the Windies, it's a bit less clear cut, isn't it? Because you could put, uh, well, you would put Marshall into the first four, of course. Mm. And I think Robertson holding, it's, um, you know, Garner or Croft. I know they don't cross over as much as you might think in Croft's career was went in a different direction, choosing to play on the Rebel Tour in South Africa and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, I mean, and even the way that Courtney Walsh is in that side by 1984, his first test match, he's playing with those guys. And mm. yeah, if you, if you were to pick four, you, you would, it would be Roberts holding Garner, Marshall, wouldn't it? But the way they configured, mm. like you're saying, it, it, there was often others involved, Sylvester Clark and other, it, it, it was, uh, and yeah. it took them a while to work out what the best, configuration was yeah for sure um and i guess just rare that all of the top options were fit and available and ready to go anyway it's an interesting scorecard because viv richards makes a duck in the first innings you know england must have been um breathing a sigh of relief and then he makes 182 not out in the second innings so 
If he doesn't get you the first time, he'll get mm. you the second time. <laughs> 379 is also what Australia made in Colombo in 2016 when Steve Smith and Sean Marsh made hundreds. Remember that? Sean Marsh is coming back yeah. into the team randomly for the third test and peeling off a ton. Yeah. First time of asking before making a series of low scores after that in very Sean Marsh style. I, I, I sort of forgot, I was at that test, but I forgot just how dominant Australia's position was. At one point they had Sri Lanka 5 for 24 in the first innings and then Chandamal and Dunajaya de Silva make hundreds. And then Australia batting second get a lead anyway, a small lead of 20 or so, as they get up to 379 and then they still lose badly. Herath takes seven, 13 wickets in the match, um, six and then seven. The Hattie. Um, and, and Australia get pumped, even though they should have won that game. They should have won the one in Palakali as well. Gary Balance, when he made his Test 100 for Zimbabwe, they made 379 for nine, drew with the West Indies. Um, And then I started looking back at the duplicates. So in the same series where India go to New Zealand and New Zealand make the duplicate 279s, India make a 379 in Wellington. Um... Second innings, I think that one is. They bat way too long anyway, and New Zealand get away with a draw eight wickets down. Ross Taylor makes 100. Um, India only leave about 90 overs to try to bowl them out. And then the duplicate thing, I just had that in my head where I was looking for times the score has popped up, the same score has popped up. 379 pops up in the same series, and it's another old South Africa series. It's 1949. England make it in one test, South Africa make it in the next test. So England batting first, Joe Berg, fourth test of the series. They make 379. Cyril Washbrook out hooking for 97. And Jack Crap, who you did a long story on maybe a year or so ago. Yep. Good old Jack Crap made 51. Alan Watkins makes 111 and is out hit wicket to Kwan McCarthy, who I don't know much about, who finishes with five wickets. Might need to look up more about McCarthy. And that's a South Africa team with Bruce Mitchell, the very underrated, very good opening bat that we talked about a while ago, and Tufty Mann, who has had some story time, uh, time in the spotlight as well. Anyway, this is a test that goes at a reasonable pace. They're scoring mostly around three and a half and over. They're you know, actually getting on with it, but it's only a four-day game with the rest day, so it ends up being a draw. And then the next match, the fifth test of this series, South Africa make the same score batting first that England did in the previous match. They make 379. Bruce Mitchell makes 99, slowly. Billy Wade, the keeper, 125. And then England bat their way to a 16-run lead. They also have a man. They have George Mann as opposed to Tufty Mann, who makes 100. South Africa have to win it because they're trailing 1-0 in the series, so they need to win this one to try to draw the series. So they have to go for it, but they bat slowly again third time round. Big Bruce Mitchell makes another 56, Billy Wade another 36 not out. And then unexpectedly, I think it's Norse captaining this team, they pull out at 187 for three, having dawdled along to this score. They set England 172 with an hour and a half to go. And you might have talked about this game in your Jack Crap story, I think, but um, I I can't remember the detail, so I thought I might as well have a look at it again. Because England, you know, and this was 1949, it's not, it's a a time when conservatism rules in cricket. They look at 172 in an hour and a half and they think, okay, let's do it. Len Hutton smacks the first ball of the innings for four. Cyril Washbrook's first ball hooks it for six. Hutton is out for 32 in 27 minutes. The opening partnership is 58. They put on 58 in less than half an hour in 1949, opening the batting. Hutton's out. Washbrook goes on with Dennis Compton. He gets out for 40. 
and then wickets start to fall. The score's gone just past 100. Um, George Mann gets out cheaply. Alec Bedser gets sent up to pinch hit. He goes out cheaply. Compton gets out for 42. The seventh wicket goes down with the score at 153. So they're about 20 short of their target with three wickets in hand. But they still have Jack Crap, the man who was pushed down the order from number three down to number six. Presumably wasn't that quick with the scoring. But he he's on 16 not out. They've got one minute to go in the game and they need 10 to win. And in three balls, he hits 10 runs, wins the game, finishes with 26 not out. They chase 174 in 23 overs. They're eight ball overs, but still, they're going at 7.28 and over in 1949 to mow it down. Baz ball, Cyril Washbrook ball, wash ball. (laughs) I mean, that is good advice and also a, a new style of play. This... You know, it was it was invented. If, if Gilbert Jessup didn't invent it, then Cyril Washbrook did. That is a very good test match that involves 379, which is probably not the answer for you, Dave Williams. But if you want to go back and look up the scorecards from England's Tour of South Africa in 1949, you will find some very interesting numbers going on just there. Whenever I um, see the last name Mann, so in this case George Mann, whenever I see Simon Mann, I think of I, I feel like I want to call him Hassa mm. Hassa Mann, who was like a famous Melbourne footballer. Um, I don't know why that sort of become a bit of a brainworm for me. The guy who nearly kicked one of the most famous points in footy history had the chance to win the 64 grand final and miss from 20 metres out and had his neck saved by Crompton a couple of minutes later with the snap with Collingwood ahead in time on. But um, after Gablich's goal and all the rest of it. But I, feel, I wonder what, you know, Hassa man, Simon man, you know, you get those people who you just feel like you want to call them something, but if you did it would be wildly inappropriate. That would be one of yeah. those. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if... Yeah, Simon Mann's not really someone who nicknames would stick readily to. You know, there, mm. there's a sort of quiet dignity to Simon Mann <laughs> yes. that would be that would be resistant of nicknames. Although, you, yeah, you wouldn't always think it, but he's he's quite he's quite funny. I was going to say the same in, thing. In, in Simon, a very dry way. Yeah, Simon is one of the funniest people I've worked with. I think he's on air persona as being just extraordinarily thorough, um, and that's why he's been working on Test Match Special since 1996. The first Test series that he worked on was he, he did the Bulawayo. Um, a test that was drawn on runs, the Nick Knight, Heath Streak, Flip and Murdered and so on. And the anecdote that gets told is that he was scheduled to come back on air and Blofeld was commentating uh, with him and Blowers um, just never handed over for the last 90 minutes of the test match because it was so tense. He's like, it, it's, it's, it's befitting of me staying on the whole way through. <laughs> so Simon didn't get a chance to come on in the final exchanges or, or any of the last hour and a half. And um, I know that Daniel tells the story that this is still used as a, a, an expression in the TMS commentary box when a commentator outstays their welcome. Because, you know, there's a bit of a, a convention, isn't there, Jeff? You, get, you know, let's say you're due to come on at the top of the hour. If it's 59 pass, you do the next mm. over. And if it's on the dot of 0-0, zero, zero, you hand over. And even if yeah. someone's on 99, unless you've got an agreement with the other commentator who's coming in that you just call the 100, and occasionally that, that kind of thing plays out. The, the the aura, the energy, the karma is that you do the right thing if it's coming up to the top of the hour. A few other, a few more thoughts from, um, a few more thoughts from, um, from, from Fred Truman, then it'll, from Trevor Bailey, and then it'll be Christopher Martin Jenkins to use the, the line from Arlett. Um, back in 1980 and you do yep. your thing and you give over so when someone outstays their welcome and, it, and it's 21 past and they're doing an extra over they are said to be doing a Bulawayo and that goes back to that first <laughs> test that Simon commentated on or first series and a famous test back in 1996 Hi my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff 
You have got one more number. It's from Tim Henry. He is another new pledger. His number is $2.05 in AUD. Hi, Tim. Uh, great to have you with us as well. I'm going to do this slightly the wrong way around here. So uh, I've got the AUD number here. Um, so I'm going to get to an Aussie eventually. Uh, but 205 has got other bits that are interested. Well, we're interested in. First of all, it's Andy Sanders' cap number. And I was thinking oh, about this. And, and, you know, 205, when we were distributing numbers for this show, a couple of days ago, I said, I'll take 205 because it's more than likely to be in my hitting zone of an English player in the interwar period. And yeah, that is, that is true. Sander made his test debut in mm. 1921, but um, we have spoken about him. If we were doing an all-time story time 11, yeah. of those we've mentioned most and deserve entry in it, that might be one for our patrons. Who would be yeah. in the all-time story time 11? I think Sander's opening the batting. Is that... Yeah. Uh, I, I, um, you know, there are a lot of people... Wally, Wally Hammond's in there. Wally sure. Hammond's batting batting at three um, with his cock. I got a message... Or not. I got a message in when... Post, post <laughs> cock. <laughs> One of my former colleagues who uh, is ever so accomplished, you'll like me calling him that. Um, that said, should be a stats... When, <laughs> when you do your stats guru thing and you select the fields, you know, is captain, is keeper... You know, cock on, <laughs> cock off. You, you said in your 30-second summary after our World Cup final show that Travis Head, you know, won the game spinning on his dick. My, yeah, I did say that. My, 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 I didn't plan to say that. It just it, that was purely impulsive. That's why I don't care if I say his name. Chris Barrett is now the Treasury Secretary. Got in touch and said he fucking loved that line. He never heard that expression before. He's going to, in the future, try and find a way of working it into conversation. To which I wrote back and say, I want to see yeah. him put it into a Treasury minute. It's being sent up to the Treasurer at some point. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so spinning on his dick. It, uh, it means to do something easily with yes. ease. Um, yes. Hmm. Yes. So who else gets in the story time eleven? Hugh Tayfield, speaking of broken cocks, well, they're not broken. His was well, just Clary extraordinarily Grimmett's good. Clary Grimmett's obviously the spin. Clary Grimmett, yeah, but they can work in tandem, Tayfield and Grimmett. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bit to work with here. I feel like there'll be someone out there who'll do a splendid job pulling this together. Um, this, yeah. has got, this has got sort of Hugh like... Hugh Tayfield loved working in tandem. Yeah, I, I suspect he probably did. I suspect he did. Um, <laughs> he just loved it, didn't he? I'm sure he and Wally would be... Anyway. Um, good, good, never good, good, good material, this. Good material. Um, right, where are we? Um, uh, I, I then went to like 2nd of May birthday. It's like 205, 2nd of the 5th. Haven't done a birthday in a while. But if I was going to do a birthday, I'd have to do Brian Lara. I'm like, speaking of. Uh, um, but Brian Lara, it's, it's a bit, bit, bit basic bitch, isn't it? A bit boring doing Brian Lara. Yeah, you know, enough's been said yeah. about... BCL. Yeah, he doesn't really, you know, there are some people who we like almost studiously avoid talking about in this program because their profiles are too high. Like, we mm. would not do an answer on Shane Warne, you know, about his the, the breadth of his career because why would we? Everyone knows that story. We only did Jack Hobbs a month ago or whatever, and that was mm. largely focusing on, you know, his first class career, not his English career. I enjoy doing that. We're going to do Jack Hobbs Day yeah. next year, but, you know, you get the point I'm making. Lara was the second ever Nerd Pledge number after the 222 from Philip Ming. It was a 375. That's right. That's um, right. Hmm. So he's had his... 75 was the second bespoke number, so he, he played his part in the invention of nerd play. He had his moment in the sun. But, yeah, my, my instinct of 205, Jeff, was that it could be a DAB. And it's not Andy Sandman, but DC, play the music anyway. Jeff, I just couldn't let this opportunity pass. Um, Australian cap 205. Yeah, it's after the war. It's 1956. But uh, we talked about uh, we talked about Hopper Reed a few months ago. You know, I like any cricketer whose first name becomes something that describes their cricketing act. Well, how about Chucker Wilson? 
Uh, Jack Chucker Wilson was the 205th Australian to play That's Test a cricket. Great nickname. Yeah, why do you reckon they called him Chucker Wilson, Jeff? <laughs> In that era. Do you think his elbow was bent? <laughs> well, they, they, they well they accused everyone of being a chucker back then, didn't they? That was that was kind of the that was kind of yeah. the dumb thing. Yeah, especially if you weren't white. Well, you've got to remember this is the the lock Tony Lock um, era, and I guess we're we're not far away from Mecca as well uh, by then. But yes, yeah, so so Jack Wilson. This is quite a good story, but in a way, it's sort of lacking detail. Like I I wish I could do twenty minutes on this bloke. It feels like the kind of guy who should have a book written about him, but it's not. Now, he, he doesn't end up having that kind of life. So I'll do the best I can to colour in a few gaps as we as we go here. But, yeah, so Jack Wilson is known as Chucker because he bowled left-arm orthodox and he did have a kink in his action right. or he had, a, he had a jerky action is the term used at the time. But he didn't chuck it. The reason he had a problematic action is he got into a football incident when he was younger. So he came through and played for South Melbourne, in, uh, not in VFL, but he played footy um, as well and he grew up in Melbourne, so playing both sports, which was the custom, I suppose, before the war, hurt himself badly in a football injury and thus found himself with a with a, a problematic enough arm that it did still affect the way that he bowled. And he moved to South Australia because his wife was ill. I don't really know what she was ill with, but, you know, as um, a dedicated, devoted husband, he left Victoria where he was playing first-grade cricket. He captained South Melbourne for a number of seasons in order to move to South Australia. And that's where he stayed from a cricketing sense. He played um, seven years of Shield cricket and did not miss a single game, so perfectly dedicated to his craft. At five foot six inches, so 167 centimetres in, in New money and he was you know pretty effective i should say by the way that um uh, on the eve of the war one of his first wickets um that he took was um there's fothergill another great um football player but he, he bowled him uh, playing cricket when still at souths and yeah he, he moves from there you know after the war as i say ends up playing in south australia and becoming a bit of a mainstay a final word bit that you'll like jeff is that he played a sheffield shield game on christmas day which is pretty unusual uh that was a shield game between south australia and queensland um that began on christmas day 1952 so there was a test match between australia and the windies that that, that was played um on christmas day i think in 1956 jeff six seven possibly five six hang on to, to clarify one thing he was he was playing football before the war he he was was that right Yes, he was, but not not at the top level, but the injury. Whatever the injury was that fucked his shoulder up happened playing footy, right. but he kept playing cricket. This is more just explaining why they called okay. him Chucker because his action was jerky. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering if, if he crossed over with Laurie Nash because he was yep. playing for South Melbourne before the war and he was playing um, cricket. Was he playing cricket for South? Yep, as he well, was. Yeah, Laurie Nash played for South he, Melbourne. Uh, that's a good question. I'd, and then he then he moved to play. For, he played for like West Melbourne or something yeah, later on. Yeah, um, and, and dominated. So yeah, might, they they may well have crossed over in, in either of the sports. That's a good point. Yeah, um, Laurie Nash being one of our favourite ever story time tales. You've done it in a live show. Very nice. So this Shield game between South Australia and Queensland in fifty two fifty three started on Christmas Day. What on earth were they doing starting a Shield game on Christmas Day? I mean, I know that we've seen a Test match being played on it. Maybe we should see more of it. Anyway, Anyway, so he took wickets there. He took three in the first innings. That wouldn't have been quite at Christmas. He made only one run for the match, which, again, is kind of in keeping with the story of, of Jack. He was a permanent number 11. Never batted any higher than that. But did do well enough in the Sheffield Shield to get taken on the tour of England in, in 1956. And this is not for nothing, right? Like, you know, they've got Benno in that side already. Um, he got overlooked in 1953 because Ian Johnson 
obviously was bowling with Benno at that point, but gets the chance to go to England in in fifty six. And whilst he didn't like he didn't play tests, but he did play quite a lot of first class games, and it included uh, a best of seven for eleven against uh, Gloucestershire, who uh, Jeff um, the Freaks, your favourite county. That seven for eleven included a stretch where he took six for none. So it, it was evidently on a very favourable pitch. They bowled out Gloucestershire for forty four in that stretch. But I don't like this from Neil Harvey. Neil Harvey describes if, of if you if you get seven for eleven, you should get a free Slurpee. Quite absolutely. Well, I, I don't know whether Neil. Harvey would share your view. Harvey said of the match figures that they were flattering and far out of proportion to the way he bowled. Harvey later said about um, what Wilson did in 56, he had a good holiday. Neil Harvey is such a prick when it comes to the way he talks about his fellow cricketers. I've I've got a lot of time for the Harvey story and I think that essay he wrote in the Almanac this year about 75 years on from 1948 is an absolute beaut and I know he's got lots of nice things to say about some of his teammates but you don't need to talk a bloke down like that. You know, anyway, that's the way it played out. The other thing that happened to him in 1956, and this doesn't come up really anywhere. I do not know how I found this. In fact, I found it in the caption to a photograph, right? Caption to a photograph. We know all about what Jim Laker did when he took his 10 wickets in an innings against Australia in 56 at Manchester. Well, as we might have talked about uh, in India, I've got a feeling this came up with a story we were telling there earlier in the year. He also took a tenfer against Australia in the tour game uh, when playing for Surrey earlier in, yeah. the, in the stretch. And it's not for nothing that Jack Wilson was the final wicket in that. He was the 10th wicket of the 10 for 88, caught by Roy Sweatman. I'm not sure from the photo where it was, but I've got a picture here of, you know, a very chilled out looking Jim Laker finishing his 10 wicket bag as he did when playing the test match, famously stopping off for a pint on the way home after finishing his work at Manchester. So yeah, it was an eventful um, a, a trip to um, England for, for Jack taking a seven for and being part of that. Then... The way it played out was on the way home in 56, they took on both India and Pakistan in in test matches en route back to Australia, which was, I guess, a a good use of resources, you know, given they were on the boats. I think they were still on ships then, weren't they, Jeff? 56, it's before they start flying, Mm. isn't it? I'm pretty certain they were on on ships in 56. So on the way home, they went through the, the subcontinent. And they'd been promised by Johnson, who by this stage is the captain, everybody who didn't play a test in England would get at least one test when playing... Um, in the subcontinent, and that's effectively what happened to Wilson. So he got given the test at uh, at Brabourne uh, Stadium, uh, and um, yeah, he made his debut there. He bowled a lot of overs. It was a very spin-friendly pitch. At one stage, he opened the bowling on a day with Richie Benno, but he only took one wicket, and that was when the test was well and truly dead. So one wicket at test level, and then went back to complete his career, his Sheffield Shield career, that is, with with South Australia, ended a a couple of years after that. But um, still a a test cricketer. Um, And the the other thing that's kind of... um, Uh, that's kind of got me interested uh, about Jack and you might have seen us uh, in the Nerd Pledge group uh, today, um, Nerd Pledge CSI, discussing this, Jeff, I'm not sure if you were plugged into the conversation, is that he he passed away in 1985 and there's just nothing about it. Like, you know, so he dies in his 60s, not a long life, early 60s, I think he died at 62, but there's like nothing in the obituary and wisdom about the way he died. There's nothing in the magazine articles about the way he died. And there's nothing in Ken Peace's book chapter about him being a one test wonder that gets a reference either. Um, there's just commentary on the way that he played, the way that he bowled through his career and, and acknowledging that being a, a left arm spinner is not an easy thing in Australian cricket historically. Very few of them have gone on to have major careers, but, and so, so it is for Jack, but yeah, like I find it slightly odd that a test cricketer would pass away 
at not an old age and for there not to be some extra piece to this. Like, yeah, sure, he might, he might have had a heart attack, right? He might have died suddenly or, or whatever. But also, maybe that wasn't the case. Like, I feel like that's a story I want to get to the bottom of. I couldn't find anything in a newspaper search either. Like, if an Australian cricketer who was 62 died now, there would be quite a bit around that, naturally. I suppose that might reflect the times and the fact that he only played the one test, but still, an Ashes tourist in 56 and, and part of something with a lot of very high-profile people, you would expect more commentary, right? Well, if it happens now, you get a press release sent out with Nick Hockley's name on it or Mike Baird's name on right, it or whatever, yeah. saying commiserations, yada, yada, and they run through the stats and there's kind of a, there's a pro forma approach to this. If it's not, if it's not in any of the secondary sources, then generally that means that there's nothing in the primary sources, as in there's, there's no detail in any of the newspapers yeah. um, for those people to have gone back and found, because if it was there, then somebody would have found it. You know, Ken Peace doing his research or whatever it was would have been able to track that down. So usually that that you can kind of read, you can read the expanding ripples of historical research and read them backwards and figure out that sure. this lack of information means that there must have been a lack of information at an earlier stage. And so for whatever reason, it wasn't reported on or no detail was included in the reports um, or it was just a, considered an open and shut case coronially it was you know a man in his 60s dies that's a you know even now it's not a, it's not an old old age but it's it's in this sort of elderly enough bracket that it's right. not a surprise when it happens so it might just be one of those kind of cases that you know you, he died of old age and he's that's it um and, and didn't have much of a career so there wasn't much of a write-up or much of a fuss made about it yeah yeah i guess that's it he did wear test cap 205 though and, you know as we know that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do so yes he yeah, he, he passed away he passed away in october of 1985 the one test match 78 first class games where he took 230 wickets at an average of, of 30 and yeah just 260 287 runs in his 78 games at an average of five so and a high score of 19 not out so talk of him not being a batter um seems uh, reinforced by that but yes that tour of 19 for John Jack Chucker Wilson uh, with his left arm orthodox. And um, that, is, uh, that is my answer, my 205. And uh, thank you to our new pleasure, Tim Henry, for getting involved with what we're doing here. Chucker Wilson and Blocker Wilson. <laughs> Maybe we could get them together, name something after them. I don't know. Well, it's got some... Thinking it through, there's quite a few finer word bits there, isn't there? I mean, playing on Christmas Day, that's been an interest of ours in the past. Mm. Getting sledged by... Neil Harvey, we've not the first time that's come up in conversation, yep. and being the tenth one wicket, test wonder. a one test wonder, and being the tenth wicket for uh, mm. for Jim Laker in a tenfer, in a tenfer, and also yeah. taking a seven for eleven, seven for eleven against the Gloucestershire Freaks, who are notionally at least your county. So there's a bit there. I'm glad I'm glad I've had the chance yeah. to spend some time reading about him today. There we go. Good to know about another Jack. Everybody was called Jack back then, weren't they? Uh, and and I think. I think that's enough. I think we can say that has been Storytime 160. This has been The Final Word. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, go to patron.com slash word. That's how you can sign up, help us keep making the show and get involved in what we're doing. If you've played Nerd Pledge before, you can send through another number. You can change your number. We will add it to the list. It will go around again. This is the way the Nerd Pledge universe works. If you want to come to the live show in Melbourne on December the 11th or in Sydney on January the 7th or in Adelaide on January the 9th, you can do those things. Um, check the link in the show notes. It will take you to the link page that has all of the different links on it, the things that you could need. And uh, 
uh, we hope to see you there. And if you want to come down to the Final Word game on December 3rd at Brunswick Street Oval in Melbourne, we'll be playing there or Jan 26th in Sydney. Yes, the game we've confirmed is going to start at 1pm on the 3rd at Brunswick Street Oval, so it's going to be a lovely day. Love to have people down there. There's a dinner in the offing afterwards, Jeff, that we'll announce. Um, well, I say announce, we will talk more about closer to the time. Got one um, confirmation too before we wrap this up, by the way, Jeff, in my notes here. Dobbo said that he loves hearing about the McGrath and Gillespie 114 run partnership uh, uh, in Storytime 151, which was when they both made half centuries in a test against New Zealand. So thank you, Dobbo, for getting in touch. And you can do so as well if we weren't correcting our answers today. Let us know and we can come back and revisit it in our next revisit special, which is probably Jeff Chew in about March or something like that. We yep. try and do two a year. Um, and in the meantime, we'll keep cracking on with as many new numbers as we can, and we'll be back in person for the next story time that we record, I'm pretty sure, Jeff, or maybe one more week virtually before we uh, are back in the saddle doing these, and uh, as we will all the way through. Uh, and yeah, uh, as you say, I think that's just about everything. Thank you to everybody who listens. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. We love making this program. Um, we love getting feedback about this program. Story time will feature in the in the live shows. We don't quite know how as yet, but there'll be there'll be space for that there'll be t-shirts at the live show as well the Glenn Maxwell shirt some other shirts we're working on Tilo uh, Fobbs who was um, with you Jeff um, two nights ago netting which I thought was interesting that you worked through your jet lag by having a net with the final word 11. Um, Tilo and Talking I... Talking about chuckers, I'll tell you yeah, what, yeah. Tilo I mean yeah. there's there's a bit of a kink there uh, so it's, it's pretty unusual to have a, a a man of German descent who's got, he's got his permanent residency now. But yep. um, you don't see a lot of Germans playing cricket generally in Australia. But it's even rarer when I, you know, I'm facing up and I say, oh, I'm not too sure about that elbow. And he says, hey, I've been to the University of Western Australia and yes. been cleared. Like, how many Germans know how to make a UWA reference? Well, like, well, that, uh, is, that is embracing the culture that, you, that you've adopted to a, um, an extent that is deeply impressive. Uh, this, is, this is what I was going to say. League T's are going to make some more shirts for us. And I think I'm finally going to make the my bowling action has been tested at the my my action has been cleared at the University of WA my final word <laughs> So Tilo got me thinking about this. Um, I think I hit him for a couple of big sixes in that game we played against each other. Um, uh, Tilo and I played. I can't remember. Maybe that was the Bucks Day game. And Tilo did take the winning catch in the first final word game in England. He, Let's not forget he was the he, one who um, he was playing on the. Um he played for the Oval Dream Boys, didn't he? Because they were. They oh, were he, short that's right. Yeah, so Tilo's played with and against the Final Word in England, and will now be one of the handful who have represented the Final Word in both countries. I look forward to being uh, with him as a debutant in Australia, having not turned out in that side before on the third of December. And yeah, the the Final Word shirts. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you you know. I mean, I know you you think you know how it all works in England, but you don't know the rough and tumble of yeah. final word 11s in Australia. That is that is um, that is a world that 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 I'm going to induct you to. Yeah, I'm looking. Well, not being captain, it's not. Uh, I, I look forward to being back as a member of the ranks. I've got a game on uh, next week actually at the Albert Ground, which you'll probably get dragged along to as well. I'd say <laughs> Jeff, a cricket media 11 game gets the MCC, so I have the bowling boots on. I'll, right. I'll get one game in before the the real quiz, the real game on the on the Sunday at Brunswick Street Oval. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's how we've divvied it up. You take England, I'll take Australia. I think so. I, I think that's right. I think that's fair, isn't it? I mean, it's, it works. You, you've led this team before. Yeah, that's fair. You, you, keep, you keep looking after this team and I'll keep looking after the other one. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, right, uh, we, 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 well, while we're talking final word stuff, um, keep signing up to the marathon. Uh, I don't want. I know we, we're going to go in a sec, but I'm not going to miss an opportunity here. If you like being involved in final word activities, the marathon stuff's going really, really nicely behind the scenes. So um, yes, this is the this is a great time to get involved because you'll have plenty of time to train, hit the treadmill. Go, on, go to the park, 
get your miles up. But the thing is, you don't really whisper it. You need to get your miles up if you're doing a 10K. That's quite an easy prep. That's like two weeks of running beforehand, believe me. So um, uh, so you can do that one, or you can do a half marathon, which might take you like two months of very gentle prep uh, to get in the saddle for, or the full marathon, different story. That's a full six-month regime. Uh, and we've had a couple of final word runners accepted this week for London. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Sign up. Be part of it. It's going to be great. All for the tabs. Easy. Easy. Oh, it's easy. It's easy to run 21K. Don't believe him. This is all lies. It's not going to be easy. The t- training. Training just means you do more running before you do the running. Just go and do the run. Don't train. Just just have one day of pain and get through it. Anyway, this is it. This has been story time. 160. Let's call it here. Okay. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Thanks for listening. We love you very much. See you soon. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.